Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Holy sweet mother of God shit. Hello, hello, hello. What, what, the, what the hell are you doing? I hope no one's eating dinner. The next best thing, every Monday night from 10 until midnight on Radio Free Brooklyn. Fun for everyone except for dear Jesus. Something like that. We are going to revisit a subject tonight that we actually talked about late in the month of September. Unfortunately, there was something wrong with the studio equipment or something that night. And when I went back to listen to the recording to post as a podcast, it was sounded something like, so that wasn't right. So we couldn't use it. And so we're just going to pretend it didn't happen and talk about it again. We're going to discuss the lifetimes and work of musical theater legend Stephen Sondheim. Shut up, you asshole. If you have no respect for the god of musical theater, just because you may not like musical theater, who am I talking to? What am I talking about? Why am I so edgy? Okay, I want to make sure we have plenty of time to discuss Stephen Sondheim. So, let's get into it. All right, so, who is this Stephen Sondheim? Well, if you really don't know, then you're not cultured and you need to get out of the house more. He is known for more than a half century of contributions to the world of musical theater. However, his contributions to the world, especially the art and entertainment world, go way beyond the stage. Stephen Sondheim has received an Academy Award, eight Tony Awards, which is more than any other composer, eight Grammy Awards, a Pulitzer Prize, a Laurence Olivier Award, and the 2015 Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's been described by Frank Rich of the New York Times as the greatest and perhaps best-known artist in the American musical theater, period. And I don't think there's any question about that. So we can get rid of perhaps. Stephen Sondheim, he uh, was born on March 22nd, 1930, right here in New York City. Yeah, he grew up on the Upper West Side, if you can believe it. He saw his first musical at the age of nine. It was called Very Warm for May. It was by Jerome Kern and his future mentor, Oscar Hammerstein. You've probably heard of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Well, that's the Hammerstein. In 1942, Stephen Sondheim moved with his mentally unstable, wretched bitch mother, she was abusive to the nth degree, to Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Now, out of pure luck, Oscar Hammerstein just happened to own a farm right next door, and that is where young Stephen would often go to escape. And that's what began a very, very long friendship and mentorship. So, in 1958... Stephen Sondheim got his first big break when he was talked into writing the lyrics for a new Leonard Bernstein musical called West Side Story. Now, I say he had to be talked into it because, as you've probably heard, Stephen Sondheim writes lyrics and music very well. And he was very eager to get something of his very own produced. He had been working on a number of projects and he wanted to kind of really devote his time to his own music. 
not somebody else's, just writing the words. However, Oscar Hammerstein, his friend and mentor, knew that whatever Leonard Bernstein was working on was going to be successful, and he knew that it would be an extremely valuable educational experience for Stephen Sondheim. And that was a very good call on his part, wouldn't you say? Yes! Now, it's interesting because I think a lot of people forget often how excellent Stephen Sondheim is when it comes to writing lyrics. Here's Stephen Sondheim talking a little bit about how he feels when it comes to lyrics. Lyrics go with music, and music is the, the richest of the arts because it's the most abstract. And it is so filled with emotion. If the lyric is too packed, then the ear, the audience's ear, can't take everything in. It's like, a, like an over-egged cake. It just is too rich. On the other hand, if the lyric is too sparse, it's dull. So it's, a, it's always a juggling act to get, have the lyric just rich enough and just full of ideas enough and just full of surprises enough and just full of images enough. But if it's too much, poetry is the art of, as I said in the book, concision, in which images butt up against each other, in which resonance is everything. You don't always understand a poem. In fact, often you don't understand a poem on first reading. And a poem you can read at your own speed. If you don't get what that line is, you go back to the beginning of the line and look at it again, or you read three lines and then go back. You can't do that with a song. A song exists in time. A song exists in time. Now, West Side Story, of course, has a huge, I mean, like a probably six to eight very famous songs, such as... is actually I can't hear that song without thinking of the time signature bum 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 one two three one two three one two three and because that is the basis of so many other songs for example that's the same time signature that's the theme to Halloween one two three one two three one two one two one two three one two three da 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 the syncopation is very interesting and very good. Now, as I said, Stephen Sondheim wrote the lyrics to that song, not the music. And it's funny because when he looks back on West Side Story, he's proud of the work in the sense that it's successful and it's, you know, people still seem to love it and perform it. But he is often he often kind of shies away from talking about it too much. He's kind of embarrassed by it. He says, look, you know, this was my first professional gig, and yeah, a lot of the lyrics I wrote are pretty, I mean, obvious and 
amateurish. For example, he one of the songs that he says he just can't even listen to and just hates the lyrics he wrote so much for, you might be surprised. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright. And I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel. And so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real. See the pretty girl in that mirror there. Who can that attractive girl be? Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty face. I feel stunning and entrancing. Feel like running and dancing for joy. When I heard Stephen Sondheim interviewed and asked about West Side Story and that song in particular, he was like, oh, I mean, it's alarming how charming I feel. I mean, give me a break. It was like he was talking about someone he couldn't stand. But regardless, I mean, this is a beloved show. It's considered one of the best musicals of all time. And it's got some of the best numbers, especially group numbers. Kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand It's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand Our mothers all our junkies, our fathers all our drunks Golly Moses, naturally we're punks Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset We never had the love that every child ought to get We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood Deep down inside us there is good There is good, there is good, there is good, there is untapped all righty moving right along here so that was his big break that was the first time he said he got to see his name in lights and it was kind of underwhelming believe it or not a similar scenario then played out again in 1960 two years later when he was once again convinced to just pin lyrics for a Jules Stein, Arthur Lawrence musical called Gypsy. Perhaps you've heard of it. Now, this time it was actually even harder to convince him to sign on because not only did he want to write his own music, but he had just written the lyrics for this very successful smash hit musical. And he was scared that if he writes, if he just says the lyrics again, if this musical successful is successful, which it was, he was very worried that he would then be pigeonholed as simply a lyricist, strictly a lyricist, a lyricist only. I can totally understand that. It makes perfect sense. Regardless, he did it anyway, and it turned out quite well. Now, if you're not familiar with this show, it is a great show, very famous show, and its very famous role is that of Mama Rose. Now, this role is, I mean, it's such a great role. It's Jesus. She is the epitome of the stage parent pushing her girl to be a star and you know getting auditions and sleeping with producers whatever you got to do just be bigger and better and you know pushing them to the limit psycho mother and it's been played by so many brilliant famous actresses the original was ethel merman there's no business like a show business even though that's not from that show but that's how she sounds Ethel Merman's played this part. Angel Lansbury's played this part. Patti Lapone 
played this part in a fairly recent revival. So did Bernadette Peters. And believe it or not, there was a television movie version of Gypsy in which Bette Midler, the one and only Bette Midler, played Mama Rose. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! Here's Rose! Turn off! Light the lights! Play it, boys! You either got it or you ain't. And boys, I got it! Well, I got it. Some people got it and make it pay. Some people can't even give it away. This people's got it and this people's spreading it around. You either have it or you've had it. you can't tell, that's basically a woman having a nervous breakdown. She's pissed off because her young daughter is now getting older. She's become a young woman, an adult, and she says, you know what? Fuck you. You have been hardly a loving mother to me. You just want, I don't even know, you just want me to be your moneymaker? Get the hell away from me, badass woman. And she says, what? You bitch. You'd be nothing without me. And she basically is like... You don't even have talent. I've got talent. And you can hear her. She's 
performing on an empty stage to nobody. And you hear in the middle of the song, she's like, Mama's doing fine. Mama's all alone. Mama's Mama. Because she was mistreated by her own mother, and it's just a shitty cycle, isn't it, folks? So that was Gypsy, another beautiful musical that Stephen Sondheim wrote the lyrics to. Moving right along. All right. The time has come. After that, in 1962, he finally got his first full score of music and lyrics put to the stage when a funny thing happened on the way to the forum hit Broadway. The musical, if you've never seen it, you should. It's very funny. The musical tells the story of a slave named Sudalus and his attempt, his attempts to win his freedom by not escaping, but rather by helping his young master woo the girl next door. The plot, I mean, it, it's got many classic elements of farce, including puns, gags, uh, pratfalls, cases of mistaken identity, stuff like that, and satirical comments on social class. And the title derives from a line often used by vaudeville comedians to begin a story. A funny thing happened on the way to the theater. And so that's why it's called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. I love this show. I've been in this show once before. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And now, the entire company... Something for everybody. Comedy tonight. Nothing that's grim. Nothing that's Greek. She plays Medea later this week. Stunning surprises. Cunning disguises. Hundreds of actors out of sight. Bumbless, 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 no royal curse. No Trojan horse. Not a bad opening number, if I do say so myself. You know, that is the original cast recording, and Sudalus was played by Zero Mostel, a very fat, very famous at the time comedic actor. I believe he might have been the original Fiddler on the Roof guy. Yenta. What? What was his, what was his name? Golda. What's his name? What's Tevya? Tevya. My, yeah, sheesh. I'm Jewish, and I, I'm okay. Uh, but, you know, not the best singer, and... Uh, Whatever, but great show. You know, that show went on. This was the first show he ever really wrote on his own. It went on to win six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical. None specifically for Sondheim, but still not too shabby for a first show. Am I right? Moving right along. Okay, so 
let's skip along here to 1970, when his next show, called Company, debuted. The original production of Company was nominated for then a record-setting 14 Tony Awards, and it won six. Unbelievable. The plot revolves around Bobby, a single man who's just unable to commit fully to a steady relationship, not to mention marriage. It revolves around Bobby, these five married couples who are his best friends, and his three girlfriends. Now, unlike most book musicals, especially at the time, which follow a very clearly delineated plot, Company is what they call a concept musical composed of short vignettes, presented in no particular chronological order, linked by a celebration for Bobby's 35th birthday, you know, that pivotal 35th birthday. Now, this was very unique. I mean, this is this is still kind of a unique way of creating theater, but for the time, it just wasn't done much. Here, Steven Sondheim talking about the theater art form. What's fun about the theater is it's a living art, and you, you're working with living clay, and, and you get to change things and experiment with things. And even after a show is opened, you can still change it. You know, if you, if you, if you make a movie, it's set in aspect. It's going to be that way forever and ever, and you can never change it. But with, with a play, or with a musical particularly, you get to change it all the time, during the preview period and during the, even after, after it opens. That's absolutely true, and a lot of times they do. Composers, book writers, they do change them right up until, I would say, opening night. But no, they usually change stuff after opening night. However long, whenever, whatever needs to be changed, they change. So Company has a lot of famous songs in it. It's a great, great show. It is about the hustle and bustle and the everyday struggles of life, especially life for young people in a city like New York. How perfect, right? You know, Company was among the first musicals to deal with adult themes and relationships. And Sondheim, back in the day, he put it, he said, Broadway theater has been, for many years, supported by upper-middle-class people with upper-middle-class problems. You know, these people really want to escape that world when they go to the theater. But with this show, Company, here we are, just, we're just throwing it right back in their faces and putting it on display for them to watch. And that's exactly what the show is. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground while another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers, some come to work, some to play, a city of strangers, some come to stare, some to stay, and every day. And find each other in the crowded streets and the guarded parks By the rusty fountains and the dusty trees with the battered barks And they walk together past the postered walls with the crude remorse And they made it parties through the friends of friends who they never know Will you pick me up or do I meet you there? Shall we let it go? Did you get my message? Cause I looked in vain Can we see each other too? And another hundred people just cut off of the train. That was another hundred people from Stephen Sondheim's Company, the original cast recording. Now, one of, if not the most famous songs from this show is sung by the character of Bobby a couple of times throughout the show. But 
definitely at the end is the big culmination. And I can't play the original cast recording because it's not the best recording. The best performance of this song came from the one and only Miss Patti Lapone. A recording of Sondheim, a celebration at Carnegie Hall. It was a, I believe it was a concert for one of his birthdays in 1990, right here in New York City, where the most famous Broadway performers each came to pay tribute to the man himself. Moving right along. All right, so his next big work was A Little Night Music, which is not one of my favorite shows. It is his first collaboration with Hugh Wheeler, and it's actually pretty unique in that it's, you know, a lot of Sondheim's work is uniquely difficult and musically complicated compared to musical, other musical theater songs. You know, when people think of musicals, they think Broadway, you know, it's just very, you know, not that intricate and whatnot. There's nothing Sondheim has ever written that is not intricate. A Little Night Music in particular, it came out in 1973, and like I said, not one of my favorite 
shows ever, but I certainly love a few songs from it. Uh, perhaps you'll recognize this one. Okay, so this brings us to 1979, when Stephen Sondheim's, what I consider to be Stephen Sondheim's magnum opus, hit the Broadway stage. I'm talking, of course, about Sweeney Todd. Did that piss you off? No! I don't care. Okay, here is Stephen Sondheim talking a little bit about how he went about working on this unbelievable masterpiece. Now, right, and always with a slight crescendo. So there's always a little leaning in as if something's about to happen and then doesn't. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was on. Shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. Now there's an example of how you do creepy. By having a dissonance like that, and not quite resolving it, and it goes down to this chord instead of resolving it, and you feel a little relief, and then it goes. There's just that slight dissonance, and then back to... So the, the feeling is of lifting the eyes a little bit and then dropping them a little, lifting, dropping. That may seem s- subtleties that nobody gets, but it creates a mood. His needs were few, his room was bare. Another bow in a fancy chair. A mug of salt and a leather strap, an apron, a towel, a pail, and a mop. For neatness he deserved a nod. It's really hard. One deep in Margaret Street, 
As I said, I consider this his magnum opus. It opened in 1979 on Broadway. Now, why do I think this is so unbelievable? Well, for one thing, the music is truly masterful. Uh, It's one of his most complex scores, and as you heard him talk about, there's a huge amount of counterpoint and dissonance. It's just, oh, the, you can hear the anger, the pain, the sorrow, the longing, and all throughout that score, you hear it all. He also mentioned that when writing the score, he was influenced by composers ranging from like Maurice Ravel and Prokofiev to Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the score to Psycho and the famous shower scene. Now, we mentioned during the song I played from Gypsy sung by Bette Midler, that you hear basically a woman having a nervous breakdown. Well, (laughs) in Sweeney Todd, you, there's a song in which you basically hear a man devolving into madness. Sweeney Todd has come back to London to get revenge on a judge who had had him sent away for a bogus crime that he knew Sweeney didn't commit. And he's come back to get revenge, and he's just about to get revenge when suddenly someone busts in and ruins it, and he thinks, oh my god, I was so close, he's never going to come back, and he just, you can hear him lose his mind. It is my favorite piece ever. I will say, I believe firmly that the best Sweeney of all time, the best actor to perform this role was George Hearn. He was the first replacement on Broadway, and he his as a singer, this is one of my dream roles, and I've said that a long time. I've performed a few songs from it, but never in the actual show itself. This is a very difficult role to sing for a number of reasons, not least of which is most of the songs are angry and just enraged in here, screaming about stuff. And so, you know, I can't get through one or two of the songs without thinking to myself, am I hoarse? I feel a little hoarse. George Hearn had Teflon vocal cords. He just, you could see his veins popping on and he's screaming about stuff. And it's just true, truly unbelievable. This is probably my favorite song from the show. It is called Epiphany. Out, I say, out! This running and shouting, what is it now, dear? I had him and then. Oh, no, the sailor busted and I saw them both running down the street and I said, I had him! Was there beneath my hand. Now, now, don't no, I had it. His soap was there, and he'll never come again. I keep telling you. Why did I wait? You 
told me to wait, now he'll never come again. There's a hole in the world like a great black pit, and it's filled with people who are filled with shit, and the vermin of the world inhabit it. But not for long. They all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Love, tell you why. Because in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lovett, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's the one staying put in his proper place, and the one with his foot in the other one's face. Look at me, Mrs. Lovett, look at you. Though we all deserve to die. Tell you why, Mrs. Lovett, tell you why. Because the lives of the wicked should be made brief for the rest of us. Death will be a relief. We all deserve to die. And I'll never see Joanna No, I'll never hug my girl to be finished All right, you sir, how about a shave? Come and visit your good friend, sweetie You sir, too sir, welcome to the grave I will have vengeance I will have salvation. Who said? You, sir? No one's in the chair. Come on, come on! Sweeney's waiting. I want you, leaders. You, sir? Anybody? Gentlemen, now don't be shy. Not one man, no, nor ten men, nor a hundred can assuage. <laughs> and I will get him back even as he gloats In the meantime I'll practice on less honorable throats And my Lucy lies in ashes And I'll never see my girl again But the work waits I'm alive at last and I'm okay. Yes. That was Lynn Carey singing the role of Sweeney Todd. That was the original Broadway cast recording. Now, hopefully some of you are familiar with the ancient DS Ray. You hear it so at the score, especially in what we just heard. Bum, 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 bum. I mean, this is just, uh This is, you know, this is about as close as a musical can get to an opera without being a full-fledged opera. Because it is pretty much, it's very little dialogue. It, it is sung throughout. The difficulty is up there with any opera I've ever been a part of. It is my favorite work by far, Sweeney Todd. The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Moving right along. Now, one thing that Stephen Sondheim feels very strongly about, and so do I, is that songs in musicals should not just be there for their own sake. You know, it shouldn't be, okay, plot, 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 everything stops for a song, and then plot, plot, plot. Songs need to move the story along. To work in a show, in a storytelling show, which is the kind of show I'm interested in, 
in which songs express the story, express the characters, carry the story forward, then the song is like, as Oscar Hammerstein taught me, a sort of little one-act play in which you, you state an idea and then you develop it a bit and then you come to a conclusion. And in, if the song is what you would call successful in the show, it's because it moves a character from point A to point B or moves the plot from point A to point B. But the point is the song has to be necessary to telling the story. If you can take the song out and it doesn't leave a hole, then the song's not necessary. Even if it's a very catchy, great tune. Now, at this point in his career, this brings us to about 1985, Sunday in the Park with George. I uh, did a show, an episode of The Next Best Thing, focused entirely on what I consider to be the best Broadway musicals of all time. And my number one musical, people were often surprised by, was Sunday in the Park with George. The book is by James Lapine. Now, the reason I picked this is because, well, a number of reasons. First of all, it deals with such raw human emotions, stuff that you do not typically see musicals about, especially back then. You know, in 1985 and, you know, still to this day, a lot of times musicals are uh, hairspray. You know, they're uppity and fun and pop and this music is you know, stuff you can dance to and sing along with and that's kind of the whole point there's nothing wrong with that this musical is about loneliness about the difficulty of relationships about feeling like you haven't lived up to your potential in life stuff that you do not typically think yeah let's sing about this it is it was inspired by the french pointillist painter george Seurat's painting a sunday afternoon on the island of la grand Jatte. And the plot revolves around George, a, a fictionalized version of the painter who immerses himself deeply in painting his masterpiece. And then the second act is his great-grandson, also named George, who's also a conflicted and cynical contemporary artist. I love this show so much. It won the 1985 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It won two Tony Awards. It, uh, the original cast included Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin. First of all, I want you to listen to one of the early songs. Order. Design. Composition. Tone. Form. Symmetry. Balance. More red. And a little more red. Blue, 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 even, even. Good. Bum, 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 bum. More red. More blue. More beer. Color and light, there's only color and light. Okay, so when you, what you're hearing there, so as I said, George Seurat was a pointillist painter. You're hearing pointillism. You're hearing pointillism there. What is pointillism? So if you're a painter and you're painting 
a pointillism piece, a pointillist piece, it's basically a technique where you make little dabs of paint. You don't do long strokes. It's just dab, 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 And that's what you're hearing. Each note you're hearing there, especially at the beginning, the, the staccato notes, is a touch of the brush. So anytime a composer is able to take something like running or jumping off a cliff or painting a certain way and illustrate it with music, I mean, that is impressive. And you also hear, you hear the light. He's dum 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 And you can hear it. I mean, you could really, it paints a picture through music, which is unbelievable. Now, so the other reason why I love the show so much is because of the deeply human, raw emotions and subjects it touches on. For example, now this is, this is probably my favorite song in the entire show, and people are always surprised to hear that because it's one of the most random. It is called Lesson Number Eight. It is actually sung towards the end of the show by the George Surratt's grandson. He's found his great-grandmother's diary, and he's reading it and realizing that they both felt completely and utterly alone, like they were just passing through, not making any real mark. Lesson number eight. Charles has a book. Charles shows them his crayons. Marie has the ball of Charles. Good for Marie. Charles misses his ball. George misses Marie. George misses a lot. George is alone. George looks around, he sees the park, it is depressing. George looks ahead, George sees the dark, George feels afraid. Where are the people out strolling on Sunday? George looks within, George is adrift, George goes by guessing. George looks behind, he had a gift, when did it fade? Wanted people out strolling on Sunday. Sorry, Marie. See, George, remember how George used to be. Stretching his vision in every direction. See, George, attempting to see a connection. When all he can see is maybe a tree. The family tree. George is afraid. George sees the park. George sees it dying. George too may fade, leaving no mark, just passing through. Just like the people out strolling on Sunday. George looks around. George is alone. No use denying. 
George is aground, George is outgrown, what he can do. George would have liked to see people out strolling on Sunday. you want, not at where you are, not at what you'll be. Look at all the things you've done for me. Opened up my eyes, taught me how to see, notice every tree, understand the light, concentrate on love. I want to explore the light. I want to know how to get through through to something new, something of my own. Move on, move on. Stop worrying if your vision is new. Let others make that decision they usually do. Sunday in the Park with George. Moving right along. Okay, so that brings us to 1987, one of my favorite shows of all time, Into the Woods. Now, first of all, I love this show for a lot of reasons, but for one thing, just the pure imagination. You've probably heard of it. It's a show that takes classic fairy tales, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Rapunzel, uh, Witches, Jack and the Beanstalk, and brings them together, puts them on stage together so that their stories are intertwined and they have to work together. I love that kind of stuff. But also, it covers multiple themes like growing up, parents and children, accepting responsibility, morality, and also being careful what you wish for. Once upon a time. I wish. In a far-off kingdom. More than anything. Lived a fair maiden, a sad young lad, and a childless baker. More than life, I wish. With his more wife. More than anything, more than the moon. I wish. The king is giving a festival. More than life, I wish. I wish to go to the festival. More than riches. I wish my cow would give us some milk. More than anything, I wish we had a child. Please, pal. Please, pal. I wish to go to the festival. I wish you'd give us a wish for I have a child. I wish. Now what lies ahead for all that I know she's already dead. <laughs> 
but into the woods, into the woods, into the woods to grandmother's house and home before dark. Yes, and one of the storylines that is intertwined here is Rapunzel. Now, Rapunzel has been actually kidnapped very early on in life as a small child by an evil, nasty, wicked witch with magical powers played by Bernadette Peters. And she's been put up in that tower so that no one else can get to her and she will stay safe within her mother, this witch, her new mother's care. Now, yes, she's been kidnapped. Yes, this witch is scary and ugly. But in a weird way, you know, she does love this girl. Very bad way of showing it. But at an early point in the show, you hear that Rapunzel has been letting her hair down to a prince. And he's been joining her up in that tower. And she is pissed. And you, and you know, you think she's just pissed because of some spell that might be broken. But it turns out she's just scared that she's going to be, that her daughter's going to leave her. And she's going to be alone. She just doesn't want to be alone. I mean, it's very, you know, it's weird because it's, you know, in the guise of these fairy tales. But, you know, we've seen this before, have we not? What did I clearly say? Children should listen. No, no, please. What were you not to do? Children must see. No. And learn. Why could you not obey? Children should listen. What have I been to you? What would you have me be? Handsome like a prince. Ah, but I am old, I am ugly, I embarrass you. No. You are ashamed of me. No. You are ashamed. You don't understand. It was lonely atop that tower. I was not company enough. I am no longer a child. I wish to see the world. Don't you know what's out there in the world? Someone has to shield you from the world. Stay with me. Stay a child while you can be a child with me. Don't leave me, please. 
sad and not, not a very smart way to go about parenting because if you cling them to you like that, well, eventually they will push you away and never come back. Not that I would know. I'm not a parent. Anyway, so the way Into the Woods works is towards the end of the first act, you feel like everything has been wrapped up nicely. All the problems have been solved. Everyone is happy. And you think, well, is this the end? Is this just a one-act show? The first act ends with a beautiful group number called Ever After. And it came to pass all that seemed wrong was now right, and those who deserved to were certain to live a long and happy life. Ever after. Ever after. Journey over. All is mended. And it's not just for today, but tomorrow and extended. Ever after. Ever after. All the curses have been ended. The reverses wiped away. All is tenderness and laughter for forever after. Happy now and happy hence and happy ever after. There were dangers we and confusion. And the paths would often swerve. There were constant disillusion. Yeah, we but they never lost their nerve. And they reached the right conclusions. Then you find out in Act 2 that no, things are not all perfectly happy and well off. In fact, Act 2 in Into the Woods, everything goes to hell and all of the fairy tale stuff falls apart and it becomes very real. Very real. I mean, very pertinent, especially to today's world where we're having natural disasters left and right, shootings, people are being left without, you know, children without parents broken up relationships. It's, I mean, really. And so suddenly, towards the end of the show, you have a bunch of characters from various fairy tales and whatnot who have been ripped from their families, lost people they love. I mean, it's very real and it's very sad. And from it comes one of my most, one of my absolute favorite songs of all time. It is called No One Is Alone. cannot guide you now you're on your own 
Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. It was nominated for many awards in uh, 1987, and it won m- multiple, including Best Original Score for Stephen Sondheim himself. So after Into the Woods, you know, he had Assassins, Passion, Bounce, and a musical called Roadshow, but that was ultimately his last huge work. 
Stephen Sondheim's. For various reasons. For one thing, he's very old. I mean, at this point, he is 88 years old. His birthday is March 22nd, as I said. So naturally, he's slowed down a bit. But also, he has said that, you know, as you get older, especially after you've had a few successful works, the pressure to be successful is kind of overwhelming and too much. Too much. You know, people expect everything you write to be a masterpiece, and that pressure was not something he wanted to deal with. Here is Stephen Sondheim talking about modern-day Broadway. I don't take an overview of, of, of the Broadway theater. It changes a lot the way all culture is changing rapidly. And the real problem, and it's, unfortunately it's the perennial problem, is the economic one. It's the fact that young voices aren't getting a chance to be heard because producers have to raise 12 15 $20 million to put on a show, and they're not going to take a chance on an unknown writer or writers. So they will take a... A, a brand name, a brand mark. They'll take a, a Disney show with, you know, that comes with a title like Beauty and the Beast or something like that. Where the or, audience knows with, what they're going to get. Exactly. So, and, and, or uh, what they call the jukebox musicals, which are musicals that aren't so much musicals, but really concerts of familiar songs sometimes tied into a story because the audience is humming the tunes as they go into the theater rather than just humming them when they come out. And I can understand that, that safety play on the part of producers, but it's terrible because young writers aren't getting a chance. And the major thing is, you cannot write shows just on paper. You learn to write by writing in front of an audience. That's the difference between writing for the theater and writing books or painting paintings. You learn by doing, and you can only do it that way. Nobody writes a sensational show the first time out. They just don't, because they have to learn the craft. And the craft is not just the craft of writing. It's the craft of doing. It's the craft of putting it on. It's the craft of the combination of the orchestra and the singers and the final collaborator of the audience. Because the audience is the final collaborator on every show. And until you work with that collaborator, you haven't written a show. Learning by doing. The best way to learn is to do and then try again. Do, screw up, fail, learn, try again. It's, you know, try something one way, it doesn't work, try it another way. But, you know, so he may have stopped writing huge hit shows himself, but he he loves teaching. He loves he loves learning about a craft. He said that, you know, he'd love to learn about raising cattle. He has no interest in cattle himself, but he loves to read about any craft. And he was also very open to mentoring young composers. Adam Gettle, who wrote uh, The Light in the Piazza, and a young Jonathan Larson. Now, quick personal story. When I was in college, I had directed a production of Tick, Tick, Boom. It's a musical that Jonathan Larson would perform. It was a one-man show that he would perform in the years before he wrote Rent that he was doing kind of at, you know, coffee houses and bars here and there and small theaters. And it was after his, his death, it was readapted into a three-person biographical piece about his life. And when I directed the show and we ordered the materials from Music Theater International, one of the things they sent us was a disc with a recording that was necessary for a certain part of the show. It was a recording of Stephen Sondheim because Stephen Sondheim, as I said, mentored Jonathan Larson, and he had been going to see his works to kind of encourage and help him. And at one point in the musical Tick, Tick, Boom, Stephen Sondheim calls Jonathan Larson and leaves him a message. Jonathan, Steve Sondheim, Rosa gave me your number. I'm sorry we couldn't talk after the show, but I had to rush out. I just want to say it's terrific work, really. I'd love to get together and talk about it if you'd like to. Give me a call, and congratulations, you've got a great future. 
Now, my name is Jonathan, you might remember. And so sometimes I, I kept that because sometimes I like to listen to it and pretend he's talking about me because I'm ridiculous. Okay. In Tick, Tick, Boom, there's actually a song that the entire song is an homage to Stephen Sondheim, a song from Sunday in the Park with George. In Sunday in the Park with George, the first act ends with a number called Sunday, and it's basically replicated in Tick, Tick, Boom, only instead of being sung by members, you know, of an 18th century painting, it is sung by people in a New York City diner. Straight back and to the left. Pick up those fucking eggs. We're out of milk. Who's at my rye bread? Four waters to table I'm sorry seven. we don't deliver on Sunday. I need table three for two yesterday. Is there a list? Harrington, Harrington. Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N for seven. Order. No, I'm sorry. Those people were here first. We don't have tables for seven. Are we in smoking? Tension. I'll have the salad, Nikois, and some holly bread. Balance. I said I wanted an omelet with no yolks. That's why you're just a waiter. Brunch. chromium diner on the green purple yellow red stools sit the fools who should eat at home instead they pay on Sunday for a cool orange juice or a bagel the soft green cylindrical stools sit the fools drinking cinnamon coffee or decaffeinated tea forever in the blue silver chromium diner drips the Violet drool from the pools who'd pay less at home drinking coffee light and dark and cholesterol and Bums, 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 bums,
This is the next best thing. Don't go.